Basically, everyone I know has joked about how long their hair is getting in quarantine. But no one, and I mean no one, is hairier than my dog right now. He's a Spanish water dog named Arlo, who we got for his hypoallergenic coat. He's covered in curly hair that turns into thin cords, and we typically care for his coat by having him shorn like a sheep twice a year. When quarantine started, he was already due for his spring shave. But now, in early May, he's gone from the shaggy cute phase to the dirty mop with legs and teeth phase. We had to cut little eye holes so he could see through his bangs. Soon, I'm just going to have to go at him with a pair of scissors and hope for the best. Thank goodness no one has to see the disastrous results that will no doubt ensue. That's one of the good things about quarantine, I guess. No one's around to judge your lopsided haircut or your patchy mustache or your head-to-toe animal print outfit. And hopefully, when this is all over... We'll all just be so happy to see each other that no one will have the energy for that kind of judgment anymore. I'm Anna Rothschild, and this is Podcast 19 from 538. Today, we're going to do more than just talk about my dog. We'll examine why more men are dying of COVID-19 than women. We're also going to learn about a new test for COVID-19 that could potentially be done at home. But first, we're going to look at contact tracing. I've been hearing that term a lot, how we need to ramp up our contact tracing efforts if we're ever going to stop the virus and open up the economy again, or how contact tracing is bringing down the caseload in places like Iceland and Germany. But if I'm really honest, I only have the haziest sense of what contact tracing means. I know it's a way to find and isolate everyone who's come in contact with a sick person, but how do you do that for a highly contagious disease like COVID-19? And given how widespread this virus is in the U.S. now, isn't it too late to track everyone down? Susie Welty is an epidemiologist who's working as a contact tracer in San Francisco. Most of the time, she's deputy director of surveillance in the Global Strategic Information Group at the University of California, San Francisco. Her work focuses on HIV prevention in Tanzania. But now, she and other public health experts from UCSF have begun helping the city with its coronavirus contact tracing efforts. I want to sort of start off by asking what probably seems like a very basic question, but I think there's just a lot of confusion around it. So what is contact tracing? This is the basic public health tool. It's the oldest public health tool we have, contact tracing. It's how we beat polio. It's how we beat smallpox. It's basically identifying someone who's infected and then anyone that they would have exposed. And so once you have a lab-confirmed case, then you call that lab-confirmed case, and that's usually the the job of a case investigator, a disease investigator. They call that lab-confirmed case, you know, explain their situation, make first make sure they have the treatment that they need. Um, And then in this case, we elicit contact. So who have you, who are you in contact with um, the days preceding your symptoms, or if they never had symptoms, the days preceding your lab-confirmed test. Um, and the reason that we want to do that is because um, we know that people are infectious up to maybe possibly 72 hours before they show symptoms, and some people never show symptoms. 
But this, but contact tracing is really just kind of finding the leading edge of the epidemic and trying to stop it. This isn't Welty's first time doing contact tracing. She's used it to help stop the spread of HIV abroad. It seems like it would be so difficult to do contact tracing for such a fast-spreading illness like COVID-19. How do you even go about trying to find all of the people that somebody's been in contact with? It seems like such a Herculean task. Yeah, I mean, I think we're not talking about passing contacts. We're not talking about you were in Target with them or pass them on the street. Welty only looks for contacts who were less than six feet from the coronavirus patient for 10 minutes. Even that's hard to track down. This is not a silver bullet. It's not going to be 100%. People aren't going to have 100% recall. People aren't going to pick up their phones 100% of the time. But it is a tool that we have um, to stop the spread of the epidemic. Worldwide, contact tracing has worked really well in places like Germany and Iceland to stop the spread of the virus or, or at least lower the, the overall number of infections. But those places started really early. And I'm wondering in the U.S. where we already have so many cases, particularly in like major cities, how valuable is a strategy like this? I think, you know, contact tracing is really beneficial at both ends of the curve. You know, we're talking about the basically bell curve of an epidemic where it starts and ramps up and goes down. Really, like Germany started like aggressively and, and South Korea started aggressively um, early on with contact tracing of every case. And that was one of their successes. Um, if you get to a place like New York where there's so many cases, you can't possibly know who's, first of all, you can't have the workforce to do it. Secondly, you can't possibly know who's been in contact with who, like in terms of cases, because there's so many. Um, you may have come in contact with three different cases in the same day. And, and sort of this lockdown shelter in place thing is the blunt tool that we have. It's the only blunt tool and it's definitely stopped the spread. But, you know, once we get to a low enough level, we're going to open up and we are going to see more cases. And that's when contact tracing is going to be really important that we have it set up. We have it in place so that when we see this increase in cases, we immediately find all of those cases, all of their contacts, you know, kind of shut down that chain of transmission and then, you know, stop um, huge exponential growth of the virus. You'd compared um, quarantine to a blunt tool earlier. What would you call contact tracing? It's definitely not a surgical knife, but <laughs> maybe something between, you know, a box cutter, maybe. <laughs> um, it's something between a blunt tool and a very precise tool. <laughs> San Francisco has fared relatively well throughout the COVID-19 pandemic, comparatively speaking. Citizens were asked to shelter in place in February, earlier than anywhere else in the country. To date, San Francisco has had under 40 deaths from the virus. Compare that to New York City, which currently has around 20,000. The city started contact tracing for the coronavirus in early April. People like Welty from UCSF have been partnering with the city's public health department. But now they're starting to train more volunteers, which will be important as the state begins to reopen. How many contact tracers does San Francisco have now? Um, we have trained, I think, 150 and are training another, um, you know, 35 starting today. So 
Yeah, we have a pretty big number for the size of our population. Our, you know, our direct population in San Francisco is just under a million. Um, of course, the larger Bay Area is much bigger, but yeah. What's your goal for how many contact tracers uh, you eventually want to have? I think, um, you know, when we're in the point of opening up, 250 seems like a good number. I mean, this is all sort of just extrapolating right now. Each case names about 3.5 contacts, um, but that's largely because of shelter in place. When shelter in place, you know, is lifted or loosened, um, we expect people be, will be moving a lot, having more contacts, maybe up to 7, 10, 20 people. Um, and then, you know, doing the numbers, depending on the number of cases you have per day and 20 contacts, you need a lot of contact tracers to get all of those people. So I think we feel like, you know, with 250, we would be pretty well equipped. Some experts have estimated that the U.S. is eventually going to need somewhere close to 300,000 contact tracers to contain this virus. Do you know how far off we are from that? I would say very far. I think California has 3,000 and they need, you know, 20,000. And they're probably one of the more prepared states. I checked how many contact tracers there currently are in the U.S., NPR got data from 41 states and the District of Columbia. They found that we have under 8,000 in total. We've gotten at this a little bit, but what are some of the limitations of contact tracing? I mean, people's ability or people's willingness to cooperate, to answer the phone, to do what we're asking them to do, you know, and then people's ability to, to recall um and also give accurate contact information, especially a lot of the people that we're dealing with are more of the vulnerable populations, homeless, and um, and specifically in San Francisco, homeless and undocumented workers. And sharing phone numbers of people is something that's very difficult for them. Um, and in some cases, they don't have phones. So, you know, like I was dealing with a household the other day and there's, 10 exposed people, one of their roommates was hospitalized, and between them, they had three phone numbers. So, you know, trying to get at who's who and um, get the message to all of them and know how many people are actually in the house. I mean, you can't go there and knock on the door. So you're just trying to do all this investigative work by phone. It's, It's difficult. As states prepare to reopen, tech companies have tried to get in on the contact tracing game. In theory, this should help scale just how many people you can get in touch with. For some, though, the idea has raised privacy concerns. Wealthy's main concerns are different. Those technologies are great, but they need to be paired with the public health response, and they need to be part of an entire wraparound um, sort of approach to, to the epidemic. I know you were saying that for some of the most vulnerable people you speak with, you are both the contact tracer, but also sort of their main health resource, um, since they may not have a doctor that they go to. Are you also the person who's helping to organize where they're going to get meals if they quarantine, how they're going to, you know, pay their rent, like doing all of those other service things that, um, that, you know, are, that fall beyond the role of a doctor or public health uh, official? Yeah. You know, we're everything to them. Like, how do you get to the testing site? First of all, we we schedule the test for them. And then how do you get to the testing sites? (laughs) Like transportation coordination. And then um, 
we put in referrals for food services, cleaning supplies, diapers, whatever it is they need. And the San Francisco Health Department has been really amazing in setting up social service um, programs to be able to deliver food to families, to delivers cleaning supplies so that if they are living with a case, they have the bleach they need to clean the bathroom. Um, you know, if they're sharing a bathroom with someone who's sick. And yeah, so we put in the referrals to the health department and the health department does those deliveries, but it is upon us to assess what their needs are and make sure that those referrals happen so that um, they can do what we're asking them to do. Can you talk a little bit about like what training is like to become a contact tracer? Sure. Um, so we have a 20-hour module for training and we are training people who are, you know, census takers or librarians or city attorneys, people who have absolutely zero um, background in public health. So, you know, if one module, a few hours, is just an overview of public health, epidemiology, what all this means, what contact tracing is, um, more like in-depth information about COVID, how it's transmitted, you know, infectious times, at least what we know about it symptoms, things like that, just so that they have sort of the basic understanding. I think, you know, through the news and stuff, most people have some idea, but this is just a very, like, um, comprehensive overview. And then we spend a lot of time on practicing, on role play, on um, interviewing skills, cultural sensitivity, on confidentiality and, and HIPAA. Um, because those are concerns people have. And the only way you get someone to stay on the phone with you is by building rapport. So having interview skills and being able to sort of empathize and, and have a conversation with somebody who maybe you have nothing in common with, um, and maybe you're even talking through a translator, um, that takes, it takes some training, you know. It also takes, you know, a kind of person who has, the desire to do that. So it's not for everyone. You know, if you don't have the patience to have a conversation with somebody who will go off in several certain directions or, you know, kind of give you their life saga about things, um, then, I mean, because you might be the only person they're talking to for quite some time. So um, if you don't have the patience for that, it's probably not a good fit. How are you staying sane during this time? I think, you know, just knowing that I'm doing everything I can is, is helpful. But I'm not, I'm not going to lie, it's definitely very difficult <laughs> um, emotionally to, to be kind of at the front lines and hear all these terrible stories and talking to people who on the other end of the line can't breathe and trying to decide, do I have them call an ambulance or do I tell them to, how do I tell them to get to the, to the hospital? Because we are telling them not to take public transportation. We don't want them to take an Uber or Lyft. They don't have anyone to drive them. Is an ambulance really the only option we have to get them to the hospital? And, you know, like, these are decisions I feel like I shouldn't be making, but I'm the only one that, that's talking to them, you know? So um, they don't have a healthcare provider. So, you know, this is this is the best I can do. And, um, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Susie, thank you so much for speaking with me. And more importantly, thank you so much for the work you're doing right now. Um, everyone is very grateful. Thank you. <laughs> While there's still so much we don't know about COVID-19, scientists around the world are working overtime to make sense of this disease. 
So we're starting a recurring segment called COVID Mysteries, where we examine the best ideas, best hypotheses scientists have to explain a particular trend. This week, 538's senior science writer Maggie Kurth is here to explore why more men are dying of COVID-19 than women. So where in the world are we seeing more men die than women? And just how stark a difference is it? So we're seeing it just about everywhere. Not every single country is recording data on COVID deaths in a way that makes it easy to disaggregate male and female deaths. Uh, the U.S., for instance, um, doesn't record all of our deaths that way. So there's only a portion of them that we actually have sex data attached in a way that we can kind of go back and study it later. But... There are several countries that are doing this kind of reporting, and in pretty much all except two of them, and I think the data was available for 35 different countries, all except two of them had a higher percentage of men dying than women. I know we don't always have the most accurate data on the sex of of people who have died in the United States, but do we have any indication of just how many more men are dying of COVID than women here? For the 31,000-odd deaths that we do have this data complete for right now, it looks like about 57% of the deaths have been in men. So what are some hypotheses for why this is happening? Well, so the researchers I talked to said that there's probably a bunch of different things going on, and some of those are associated with biological sex, with you know hormones, with uh, your genes. And some of those things are going to be associated with gender, with the way that, you know, individual people and society conceptualizes what male and female are supposed to be like and how they act that out. So both of these things are probably happening at once. And there are good examples of both that you can kind of find in scientific literature. What are some of the biological reasons that men might be dying more frequently than women of this disease? Well, some of it is uh, genetic. So we know that there are some 60 chromo- like sixty genes that are located on the X chromosome that are associated with immune system function. And women have two X chromosomes. And also researchers told me that the genes that are associated with the immune system on the X chromosome seem to be active more frequently in women. So that's one thing that's probably going on somewhat here. And another thing is also hormonal. The um, estrogens are associated with higher functioning immune systems, while testosterone, androgen hormones, and also progesterone are associated with uh, lower functioning immune systems. Do we know how estrogen is boosting the immune system? Well, so we know that sex hormones have this kind of like lock and key mechanism that helps them get inside cells and do anything. Like that's the entire reason they can do their jobs. And it turns out that these sex hormones keys fit the lock on immune cells as well as the cells that they would need to to do their jobs. So they can actually have an impact on the cells that make your immune system function. So we know, for instance, when it comes to influenza, that women can in some ways fight off the bug better, but women are also more prone to the kind of autoimmune chain reactions that can actually lead to worse health outcomes during their reproductive years. Right. So estrogen does the job of sort of unlocking parts of your immune system that might otherwise not have been active, but it can create 
too big of an immune response almost. So then your own body gets hurt in the process. Right. Yeah. And kind of the downside to this for men is that they're more prone to certain types of cancers because they're not fighting those things off with the immune system when they start. I think one of the things that's interesting here also, though, is that there's almost no research on what how these immune responses work in people who are intersex, who are born with like XXY chromosomes or, you know, different kinds of hormone expression. And we also haven't really done much research with what happens with this immune response when trans people are taking hormones to have, you know, their gender and sex match up better. There's not really any studies about that, researchers told me. And so that should sort of factor in in how we think about this as well, because without that research, we don't really know whether, for instance, you could protect men against COVID by giving them an estrogen patch. We don't really know that that would work. Um, We just haven't done the research and we haven't included the people in the research who would be able to help us know these things. Right. This is still a pretty understudied area in some ways. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that we do know. It's not a complete mystery, but there's a lot of things that we just haven't looked at some of the questions that should be there. Right. So I know you also mentioned behavior potentially playing a role. I mean, we no longer live in a society where women stay at home and men are like the sole breadwinners of a family. But many of us still, you know, exist in the world in a somewhat gendered way. So how might those kind of social or cultural behavioral factors play into who's getting sick and who isn't? Yeah, so it's not just biology. It's also sort of how your gender expression plays out and the choices you make because of that. So for instance, we know that women are significantly more likely than men in the US to wear a mask. Um, and men are significantly more likely than women to do things like sign up for vaccines or pharmaceutical treatments. So there are these kind of differences in how different groups of people behave that aren't genetic. They aren't biological. They don't have to happen that way, but they do because of the way that we express who we are. Right. Right. And this is research that's been done uh, for years before COVID-19, right? Like wearing masks or getting vaccines. That's, I mean, obviously there isn't a vaccine for COVID-19. So this is this is research that's sort of been done over many years, not just in the past few months. Right. A lot of this research comes from influenza um, and kind of looking at that. There's also a lot of research around the um, the AIDS pandemic. Can you give me some examples of how this might kind of be playing out both in the U.S. and maybe abroad? So what we know is that men seem to be dying more frequently than women from COVID-19 and that that's true across cultures, which is interesting. It suggests some sort of biological level to what's happening, Um But the fact that it differs in the percents really wildly across cultures also probably tells us that there are cultural and social factors going on. So, for instance, in China, when we first started seeing some of these really big differences between death rates for men and women, 
you know, people start, we're talking about the fact that there's huge differences in smoking rates in China between men and women. So almost no women smoke and, you know, something like 65% of men do. And that can have a big impact on how you survive a lung disease, right? So we have these things that are happening, and there's probably not just one cause behind them. And there's probably not just one easily replicable thing that we can transfer to people to protect them. It's probably going to be a combination of things. And we're going to learn more about that as time goes on. What about here in the US? Are there any sort of cultural or behavioral reasons that we might be seeing more men die of this disease? I don't know for certain about that, but I know that in the U.S., one of the things that has been noticed is that when you look at healthcare workers, uh, women are getting sick way more frequently than men. And some of that probably has to do with the fact that women are more likely to be nurses, that there's this huge gender difference in nursing compared to other medical professions. So that's probably one part of it, because nurses are the people that are touching patients most frequently, that are dealing with patients in ways that are more likely to expose them to something. The PPE isn't always sized with women in mind, that it's kind of a lot of it designed for male bodies. And so you're finding cases that have been reported where women are trying to fit masks that are too big onto their faces. And that leaves gaps and that leaves them less well protected. So even though men are dying more, it's also not necessarily always men who are most at risk of COVID-19. And that has a gender factor built into it as well. Well, Maggie, um, I know there's still a lot of mysteries here. Um, so as you keep reporting and you find out more, um, I would love for you to check back in and tell us what you find. Yeah, will do. And now for a little good news. Earlier, we talked about how contact tracing will become more important as states start to open up. But any good contact tracing program will rely on fast and accurate testing. At this point, we've all heard stories about how difficult it is to get tested for COVID-19. And if you are lucky enough to get tested, you probably won't get your results the same day. But there's a new type of test being developed that could potentially be done at home and get you results in about an hour. The test relies on a technology called CRISPR, which you might have heard about over the past few years because it's a newish method for rapidly editing genes. In this case, none of your genes get removed or replaced, but the general mechanics are the same. A patient gives a sample of saliva or mucus to the test, and if there's coronavirus in the sample, an enzyme will snip the virus's genetic material. Long story short, that sort of sends up a flare indicating that COVID-19 was present in the sample. You can stick a paper strip in the sample, and if two lines appear, it means that coronavirus genes were found. In that way, the whole thing is similar to a pregnancy test. The test, which fittingly enough is called Stop COVID, was co-developed by scientists at the Broad Institute and the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. So far, it's only been used on a small handful of samples, but the results have been promising. The scientists ran 12 samples containing coronavirus three times each. All but one of those 36 tests came back with a positive result. 
They also ran five samples from healthy people, and those tests all came back negative. Obviously, the scientists need to run many more tests before the FDA approves Stop COVID. But if they can maintain such a low rate of false negatives, they could far outpace the standard tests for the virus, which may tell coronavirus patients that they don't have COVID as often as 30% of the time. Now, there are other tests on the market that can be done in a doctor's office in about an hour, but they require expensive equipment to process. Stop COVID tests reportedly cost under $10, though they might be more expensive depending on manufacturing costs. These tests are also much more straightforward to run. In fact, the researchers think they could one day be done in office buildings or even people's homes. Without a doctor or technician present, that could open up the tests to user error, so it's something the researchers would need to look into. But if this technology does work and could be used by regular people in the privacy of their homes, realistically to very big ifs, it could radically help our contact tracing efforts. That's it for this episode of Podcast 19. If you have a question you'd like us to answer on the show, email us a voice memo at askpodcast19 at gmail.com. That's podcast19 without the hyphen. I'm Anna Rothschild. Our producer is Jake Arlo. Chadwick Matlin is our executive producer. Now where are those scissors? Someone needs a haircut.